Hello, Roy here. I just wanted to let you know that you can listen to The Roy Green Show ad-free on Amazon Music, included with Prime. Show podcast. Hi, everybody. To lead off today's podcast, Dr. Isaac Bogosh, infectious diseases physician and scientist on COVID-19, the threat level to Canada and Canadians as the World Health Organization raises the global risk assessment to very high. Stuart Bell from Global News Investigative Journalist on two stories Stuart ran this week on Global News. Canadians are coming home after being imprisoned abroad for terrorism-related crimes. And the other story, Canada's terrorism offenders are coming out of prison still radicalized. Dan Kelly joined us, the president and CEO of the Canadian Federation of Independent Business, on how small business is still having difficulty coping with the disruptions and the disturbances of the last number of weeks. Tom Caldwell, the chairman of Caldwell Investment Management, on the stock market and how the markets are dipping in response to the COVID-19 concerns. And finally, Matthew Fisher, 35 years a global correspondent and now editorialist for Global News. He joined us from Japan on COVID-19 and how that country is significantly adjusting to the presence of the coronavirus. Dr. Isaac Bogosh is with us. Are the public health agencies sending non-too-subtle messages that things are likely to change, that COVID-19 will be increasingly present, and that we'd be well advised to take preparatory steps to protect ourselves as much as possible? Yes. We have heard it directly from the mouth of Dr. Theresa Tam, the Chief Public Health Officer of Canada. We've heard it directly from the Minister of Health, uh, not doctor, but uh, Patty Haidu, and they have, in the last week, both explicitly expressed that we can expect to see more cases in Canada and that it's better to be prepared rather than caught off guard, and they both gave very specific and targeted advice on what people can be doing now in order to prepare for the scenario where we have more widespread transmission of this infection in Canada. And, you know, obviously, like, politics aside, all politics aside, um, you know, in my humble opinion, I think that was good messaging. I mean, we had clear instructions from the top health personnel of Canada. They said, A, there's going to be more of this in Canada. And B, here's what you need to do. And really what they said was, you know, get ready. I mean, if, you're have, if, you're, if you have chronic health needs, now is the time to get this looked at. Now is to get your health optimized. They also said that, you know, you know, some people might not have the same social safety net that other people have. And um, there might, you know, for individuals who may not have others to check up on them and look after them, you know, make sure you have you know, uh, some resources at home, you know, food and whatnot, that, to, so that if, if you are sick and unwell, you're not going to run out of food in the next day if you're just feeling too unwell to, to go get them. And, you know, Patty Haidu had, uh, had some very, um, uh, you know, decent advice on that front. And, of course, there was the other advice that we hear when we we're talking about respiratory viruses, meaning, you know, if you, if you feel a little sick but you don't feel very sick, stay home don't need to run to the emergency department. It's okay if you feel a little bit unwell, not very unwell, just to stay home so we don't overcrowd 
emergency departments. Of course, they're always there if you need them. If you feel really unwell, that's that's where you need to go. But in that, in the absence of that, you can stay home so you don't crowd out emergency departments and so you don't get other people sick. And of course, with other respiratory viruses, cough into your arm, not into the air around you, and and practice impeccable hand hygiene. We have questions, each and every one of us, and we ask each other questions. And we don't have answers to provide one another. So um, let me ask you the question everyone has on their minds. What is, when does this, when would it be deemed a pandemic? And why has the World Health Organization not done so? What's the difference between the very high concern that we're at now and pandemic? Yeah, I mean, all a pandemic really refers to is widespread global circulation and transmission of an infection. And many people would say, well, what is this? That's what we have right now. Um, Other people would say, well, maybe not. Maybe these are just lots of epidemics going on and it's marching toward a pandemic, but it's not quite there. And quite frankly, I think it's rather arbitrary. I think one of the key messages, though, regardless of whether we call it a pandemic today or whether we call it a pandemic later in the week, is that we've been basically briefed by the head of the World Health Organization and by, you know, senior health leadership in in, in Canada to say we should be preparing for a pandemic. And, you know, they'll choose to call it a pandemic when they choose to call it a pandemic for whatever reasons they decide. But regardless of what they call it, they have told us, be prepared for this because this is very likely to happen. And, you know, right as we talk now, I mean, there was just a press conference where they were discussing not too far away in Washington state, the first death related to this COVID-19 novel coronavirus and um, a possible outbreak of this uh, COVID-19 infection in a nursing home where there may be up to 50 people in that nursing home symptomatic. Now, it's not clear if everyone has that infection in the nursing home right now, but certainly there have been two cases linked to that nursing home. And all this points out, all this really demonstrates is that there's more of this around than what was earlier anticipated. The more we look, the more we find. And, you know, this is not off in the distant horizon. This is really starting to land here on our doorstep. We've had more and more cases imported to Canada, and we will continue to see more and more cases imported to Canada. So really, now is the time to to be prepared. Are we ready to treat Canadians who fall sick, or will people perhaps have to tough it out alone at home? Because health officials don't want a possibly infected person to intermingle with others, and that would have to include families, I I would think. Are we ready? Because our hospitals, from what we are told, are at 100% capacity already without COVID-19. Yeah, I mean, hospital capacity is always a touchy touchy subject. I think if there's any silver lining, and, you know, of course, it's it's always hard to find a silver lining in, in the middle of an epidemic, but there really is a small silver lining here, and that is that, you know, it is the tail end of February, and our influenza season is coming to a close. Influenza season, you know, December, January, February is busy. I mean, always, the hospitals are always busy. My hospital's busy. I'm sure every hospital around the country is busy. But during those months, we just see more cases come through the emergency department. We see more cases admitted to hospital. We see more people who need care in an intensive care unit in that level of care. And, you know, the fact that the predicted influx of cases with COVID-19 
the fact that this will not overlap with our influenza season will be welcomed by many in the healthcare field and many frontline healthcare providers because we're usually busier than normal during that time. You know, and do we have the capacity? You know, I think the answer is probably. Um, it just depends on how many cases of this we actually see, and it really depends on how this plays out. Um, no one really knows, no one has a crystal ball. We've seen how it worked out in China, um, and, uh, but we've also seen you know, other places like uh, South Korea and Japan fare a little bit better. Yeah, there's a lot of cases there, but, uh, but people are t- tend, to, tend to be doing better outside of China than the Chinese experience. No one really knows, but I think relative to the rest of the world, I think Canada's going to fare significantly better. That's good to know. Uh, but we still, as you say, we still, nobody really knows for sure. Right. Sh- should we expect, can we expect the COVID-19 virus to behave like, if I may call it this, a regular flu virus and wane or mostly disappear once the weather turns warm? Or do we have no idea? certainly hope so. There's three scenarios. And again, we'll preface this with nobody knows. Lots of speculation, a lot of armchair experts speculating. I'm one of them, but, but, uh, but no one really knows. One of three scenarios is going to happen. Number one, this is going to circulate broadly, and then it'll just peter out and disappear. That's one scenario. Another scenario is it's going to circulate broadly, and then it'll continue to circulate year-round with just very, very low-level transmission, but it'll circulate year-round. And then the third scenario is it's going to circulate broadly, and then it'll sort of integrate itself into our seasonal viruses that we get, and we'll see more of this in the winter months, and then it'll sort of disappear in the summer, and it'll integrate with the seasonal months. Two big points with each of those three scenarios. The first one is it will circulate broadly, (laughs) as I mentioned, which is really unfortunate because that's what it's showing to be doing right now. And the second point is the the long-term solution to this, the long-term management strategy, is vaccine development. Um, and, you know, this, is, this coronavirus is certainly going to be around for a while, and all efforts should be poured into, well, not all, but lots of significant efforts should be poured into creating a vaccine, which is, is being done right now. There's a ton of money and energy being uh, directed toward vaccine research. It takes time. It's going to be more than a year before we have an effective vaccine, but there's a significant push to get this up and running. So, I mean, that's, those, are, those are sort of the three scenarios. Okay. I, if I can keep you for another two minutes. Sure thing. Um, I read a story earlier today that there was a team of epidemiologists who were in China, and uh, a Canadian doctor was uh, very prominent in that team. And they found, and I hope I have this correctly, that there's a bell curve showing China may be gaining the upper hand on COVID-19. Fewer new cases. Does that sound plausible, or can we trust what comes out of China? as far as information is concerned. I think we have to be skeptical of, of the data we receive. It doesn't mean it's wrong. I think we just have to be appreciative of what the strengths and what the weaknesses are in the data. But you know what? I, I think that's very plausible. I mean, China has imposed these impressive and heavy-handed public health interventions. 
that really curbed uh, social interaction. It curbed transportation within cities. It curbed international transportation. It really uh, shut down a lot of the country. And certainly, if you prevent people from interacting with each other, you're going to have less and less transmission of this infection. So that's certainly plausible. The question is, you know, is it sustainable? And is it, can you replicate this in other parts of the world? And the answer to both of those questions is probably no and probably no. So, you know, it's interesting that it, that it worked out, but I don't think we're going to be able to see that to the, to the same extent of intervention in other parts of the world. And you're urging Canadians to get ahead with their, uh, get ahead of the curve, if you will, with their prescription drugs and have them prepare themselves for, well, yeah. what it, you know, prepare themselves. Get your prescriptions filled. Make sure your chronic health care needs are, are optimized. That means visiting your uh, primary care provider or your specialist to make sure if you have underlying heart disease or lung disease or kidney disease that you're in the top health that you could possibly be in. And, uh, yeah, and, and, you know, I think it's – and stay, fo- stay – pay attention and stay up to date. There's some excellent resources at, the, you know, public health websites for uh, Canada and for the provincial public health websites. And also the World Health Organization has an excellent website where they dispel all the myths. So it's a good idea to just keep informed about uh, what's happening in the world around you and, and uh, ensure your health is optimized before we see more of these cases in Canada. I have one more question. It's it's here now, right? I mean, it's not a case of necessarily somebody has arrived from somewhere else in the world in Canada and has brought it with them. It's here now. Is that fair uh, to say? We or haven't not? really reported a significant amount of locally acquired cases. Most of the people who have acquired it locally in Canada have had like a direct contact to someone who uh, traveled. What's different is in the United States, they're reporting cases now on the on the Pacific Coast of people becoming infected with this virus who haven't traveled, and they have no idea where they acquired it from. They don't know what the contact was. So they're a bit further along than we are. But make no mistake, we're will, we will, we, we are only a few weeks behind them, and, and it's only a matter of time before we start to see more locally acquired cases in people who don't have a travel history or who don't have a significant contact who had this infection, just people who somehow acquired this in the community. Dr. Bogosh can't thank you enough for being available to us so regularly and providing us with information and really providing us with some comfort as well because information is what we need. It allows us to proceed more effectively, efficiently, and I think to the mutual satisfaction of the rest of us. Thanks so much for the time. Anytime. Have a great day. You too. Dr. Isaac Bogosh, Infectious Diseases Specialist and Scientist at the University of Toronto and Toronto General Hospital. I read uh, two stories that, well, they all catch my attention because that's what I do. I'm a news junkie. But there were two stories by Stuart Bell, who's one of the very best investigative journalists in this country, that over the last couple of days really caught my attention. And they're on globalnews.ca. First one I read, Canadians, um, uh, Canada's terrorism offenders are coming out of prison still radicalized. The second one I read was Canadians are coming home after being imprisoned abroad for terrorism-related crimes. Stuart Bell joins us on uh, the Chorus Radio Network on the Roy Green Show. Stuart, thank you for the time. And what a concerning headline. Canada's terrorism offenders are coming out of prison still radicalized and, as you write, still assessed a significant risk, at least in one case. Talk to us about that, please. Well, a lot of your listeners are probably familiar with uh, some of the recent events we've seen in the U.K., where... 
Uh, they've had a problem with terrorism offenders, people who've been in prison for terrorism offenses, coming out and then very quickly uh, committing terrorist attacks. There were two recent attacks, uh, one just in November. Um, in that case, uh, the guy had been out of prison for about a week, and he went out and conducted an attack. And there was another one in November where, uh, similarly, the guy had been out for several months and had went out and did a deadly attack in London. So uh, they're having an issue with um, with letting people out of prison. Uh, they've just enacted emergency legislation last week to deal with it. So um, we looked at the situation in Canada and uh, found sort of a similar uh, concern, to be frank. Um, there were... In the past year or so, there were five terrorism offenders released uh, from Canadian prisons. And uh, when we pulled the parole reports on them, we found that in four of the cases, they were still deemed by the parole boards to be radicalized and a, a risk to public safety. So there's clearly an issue here, and it raises a couple of issues that we explore in the stories. It really is quite uh, concerning to most people, to the layperson who reads in your story, Five paroled in 2019, and yet four of them still considered a risk to public safety by the very people who are releasing them. It's hardly logical and reassuring, again, as you say, particularly after you look at what happened in the U.K., where they have passed legislation now which will keep individuals in prison for the length of their sentence if they're still considered to be dangerous. Well, it's actually, when you look at it, it's actually easy to understand because what's happening is two things. One is the terrorism sentences... Uh, for people convicted of terrorism offenses in Canada are pretty short. Uh, the, since 2016, the majority of sentences have been seven years or less. And if you look at other jurisdictions like the United States, the sentences for similar types of crimes will be much, much longer. And, and then when you do the sort of Canadian justice math where you um, an offender will get time and a half credit, sometimes double time uh, for the time that they served in detention awaiting their uh, trial, and then, of course, uh, their statutory release at two-thirds of the sentence. So when you look at a case, for example, like Rahab Dukmash, uh, she was a woman from Toronto who went off and tried to join ISIS, and then she was unsuccessful, so she came back to Toronto, armed herself with a butcher knife, went into a Canadian tire, and started attacking people. Uh, and that was in 2017, uh, in 2019, last year, she was sentenced to seven years. And yet, when you do the calculations, she's actually already eligible for parole. Yeah. So the question that raises is, is that really enough time for somebody who's so devoted to um, extremist violence that they're willing to go into a Canadian tire and kill people? Is that long enough to uh, to change their uh, their mentality about that, and I, you know, I'm not sure it really is. No, and I, you know, I, I've spoken uh, many times with our mutual friend Scott Newark about this whole issue about statutory release, and I've, you know, I did a show from inside um, prisons from Joyceville, for example, where the warden said to me, "Look, I, it's Thursday, it's release day. I have to let people out of here. I know I'm going to see them again in in relatively short order, but what can I do? It's." statutory release, and so I have to let them go. But remember, that, that was at a different time. We're not talking about terrorism and ter terrorism uh, potential or pet terrorism offenses they were convicted of. Stuart, there are times that I wonder why we have the dangerous offender status. I know you have to apply for it before the, uh, the, the, the case goes to court, but 
boy, when you're releasing people who've committed acts of terror who are still considered dangerous by the people who are releasing them, you really do, just on a logic circuit sense, give your head a shake. Well, dangerous status, offender status is an option for parole boards uh, at the release of, when they hit the statutory release point at the two-thirds of their sentence mark. But it, And it has been used in terrorism cases, uh, to be honest. But not often, but, right? But no, in, in most of these cases, what's happening is the parole boards are looking at these offenders as they're on their way out for statutory release. Yeah, uh, They're saying you are still a danger. You haven't dealt with your radicalization issues. Uh, so what they're doing is they're kind of doing this sort of Band-Aid um, process where they're applying, trying to apply a bunch of conditions as best they can to try and minimize the, the risk. So um, they, they're imposing conditions such as they're ordering uh, the people as they're being released to undergo counseling, de-radicalization counseling, religious counseling, uh, they're ordering them to um, make their financial statements and their internet uh, histories available to parole officers so they can make sure that they're not up to, and they haven't gone back to the sort of terrorist activity that they were involved in before. But it's really, that's that's happening at the very end of a, the process, and it's sort of a last-ditch thing. Mm-hmm. Um, and, you know, one of the other issues that uh, comes out of this is that there really is no... Um, radicalization programming in the Canadian correction system there was a there was a deliberate um, policy choice a couple of years ago to not go that route so you have fairly young offenders for the most part that are you know really really amped up on groups like Isis and their ideology going in for very short sentences uh, so maybe you know it's not surprising that they're coming out of the other end uh, still with the same type of mentality. Perhaps even more radicalized. Well, I mean, that's a possibility. I mean, it, you know, it's not every case. There <laughs> there was one case we found last year where the offender was found to have genuinely committed himself and uh, and changed his direction, and there was a lot of people in the community that, uh, that vouched for him. Um, but for the most part, it's it's not happening. And, um, you know, there, there was a case in Ottawa as well where, as you mentioned, uh, radicalization perhaps getting worse in the prison system. Mm-hmm. Uh, he was, after he was in prison for his terrorism offense, he was trying to radicalize other inmates. Um, so, you know, that, that can be an issue. The other story that you, uh, that you had out this week, Canadians imprisoned abroad for terror-related activities are coming home. Yeah, well, in addition to the Canadians that are coming out of Canadian prisons uh, after serving sentences for terrorism. There's this additional uh, cohort of Canadians that are coming back after having served sentences in other jurisdictions. So especially the United States, there's been sort of a wave of people coming back over the years that have been convicted in states of, uh, you know, working with groups like Al-Qaeda, Tamil Tigers, uh, Sikh extremist factions. And, um, you know, the, the question is what happens when they get here? And the investigation that we did found that really not much is happening. Um, and this is something I've heard from sources in the counterterrorism field as well. Um, they're a bit concerned about this, that there really is no process for when somebody comes back, and so they've been convicted in, in the States and served their sentence for terrorism, they come back to Canada, nobody's really checking in on them to uh, make sure that they're no longer a public safety threat. Nobody's going and screening them or talking to them or 
uh, monitoring them to make sure that uh, you know they haven't like those coming out of the Canadian system, they're not coming out of the U.S. system still radicalized. Right. So it's another kind of parallel issue that kind of compounds the problem that we already have. Well, thank you for making us aware. On uh, on Twitter, it's at Stu Global. That's S-T-E-W, Global. That's Stu Global. Thanks, Stuart. Thank you, Roy. Stuart Bell, uh, one of the very best in these uh these news stories are, are concerning. Canadians are coming home after being imprisoned abroad for terrorism-related uh, crimes. And then on Thursday, Stewart's story was Canada's terrorism offenders are coming out of prison still radicalized. The amount of money that's been lost to the Canadian economy from cancelled or stalled energy projects, I get this, just the last six years, $213 billion. Actually, more than $213 billion. Let's talk to Dan Kelly, the president and CEO of the Canadian Federation of Independent Business. Last weekend, the stories of small business owners across Canada impacted by the rail blockades. We heard them on the air. So one week later, how's Canada's small business sector? Again, the number one employers in this country. How's the small business sector faring? And what level of confidence is there at present? Dan, thanks for taking the time. And how much, if anything, has changed over the last six days since we last spoke? Well, there's a few upspots. Uh, a couple of blockades have come down. There's been some limited rail service resume. Uh, that's good news. Also, some via rail service uh, starting to come back. That's also good news. I heard from a member in my home province of Manitoba that said that uh, her business in Churchill, Manitoba, was uh, going through massive increases in costs because her guests that take the train between Churchill and Winnipeg were now uh, required to. She was required to fly them and put them up in hotels for a couple of extra nights. So it is good news that there's been a little bit of momentum, Roy. But uh, I have to tell you, the the concerns. Uh, there's other blockades that are starting to pop up, including in urban areas, preventing from people from even getting to work. Uh, sometimes even on the roadway. So when we did a survey of our members over the last weekend, uh, we tabulated the results and have found that a full quarter of small businesses across Canada have been affected. Not just those in export groups, uh, you know, in, in agriculture and natural resources, but we're talking retailers that are struggling to keep products on their shelves, running a low on business, restaurant owners that are saying that their repairs or their renovations are not complete, or they're having to buy more expensive ingredients because uh, of the cost of shipping. So the, the, the impact has been widespread, 60%, the $60,000 average cost to those 20 to 25% of our members who have been affected. And another half of small businesses say that they expect that this will affect them soon if the blockades are not fully brought down. And I would imagine that it's very difficult for the small business owner to plan effectively what, what he or she is going to be doing in the shorter and also in the longer term now. You're absolutely right. And, and, and beyond that, I mean, you can, you can control certain things in your business, and you can certainly uh, pivot as a, as a business owner, as most of them have had to do. But these big national or international events are really sideswiping them these days. We were getting flooded with calls at CFID or offices across Canada about uh, the rail blockades, but now we're getting uh, probably about a quarter of the calls are now focused on coronavirus and what they're going to do to possibly keep up. Uh, companies that are depending on shipments from Asia, particularly China, are not finding their goods uh, in time. Uh, and business owners that are saying, look, I've got a staff person that's returned from uh, an affected country and I'm worried about that. What do I do? We're getting, you know, this is another big thing and, and could also, of course, as we all know, 
become a lot bigger uh, before it's over. Yeah, uh, very much so. So if I can just segue for a moment and ask you, uh, what, what do you say to somebody who is running a small business operation who's just gone through and is still going through, perhaps with the, the rail blockades issue, trying to rebuild momentum for his or her business, and now they're faced with concerns about COVID-19. Uh, is there, I mean, what do you say to, uh, um, to, to, to this business owner? Well, the first thing I say to them is I've got un- unbelievable respect for the work and the, and the challenges that they face every day, something that I think uh, many Canadians and certainly most politicians don't fully appreciate. Um, but the other thing, we, we do try to provide them with some practical advice. On the, on the COVID situation, we're, we're providing them with some tools to, to make sure that they've done at least some cursory look at, at business contingency planning. You know, what happens if they're not able to have their staff show up or their customers are, are starting to, uh, to drop off? Uh, making sure that they've made alternative work arrangements wherever possible uh, and also providing them with some, uh, some help with the uh, employment standards rules so that they know what to do if they have an employee that comes back that is, that is affected. These are some of the practical questions that our members are, are posing to us, and our, my first goal is to provide them with, with, uh, with answers. We're, we're pu- putting more on the CFID website as well. Yeah. Uh, Dan, you sent me an email, and uh, there was something that I was going to raise with you, but unfortunately at the moment both of my computers are staring at me blankly. <laughs> yeah, look, the, the, the big fear, there's a story uh, Iveson in the, in the Post today wrote about the persistent rumors that the federal government is going to look to increase taxes on capital gains. Uh, And this, of course, you know, you you remember and covered widely the small business tax fight of 2017. Still not over the worst of that. Now, if the federal government, you know, the the NDP has been pushing uh, for this as part of its of its platform, and if if they put forward a proposal to raise the inclusion rate on capital gains to 75 percent, basically raising the taxes on the investments that business have, the retirement that they plan to have paid for by selling their business eventually. You can imagine the war that this will create with independent businesses, and I, I, I think beyond that, uh, just an awful lot of Canadians. And I'm really hoping the federal government doesn't go down there as we're just a few weeks away from Budget 2020. Yeah, that's a very concerning situation. And, of course, we all remember 2017 when essentially Mr. Trudeau and uh, his sidekick uh, Morneau, the finance minister, accused the small business community of being maybe less than completely truthful. <laughs> Yeah, that one uh, went over like a red balloon, a lead balloon. Sorry, and uh, red balloons okay. <laughs> well, it, you know, at least the party colors are there. But yes, it was uh, it was not a fun fun summer for me. Uh, really, a year long battle with the entire uh, small and medium sized business community. Uh, that would look like a drop in the bucket compared to a full out attack and and higher tax rates on on capital gains. So we're bracing ourselves for that. We're going to be certainly uh, letting the government, we've already let the government know that this would be uh, okay. a, a real death knell for a lot of our members. Dan, thank you for the time. Uh, hopefully we get this whole small business sector moving smoothly and forwardly uh, get in a forward motion because that's what we need in this country. You do great work at the CFIB. Thanks for the time today. Anytime, Rick. Dan Kelly, the President CEO of the Canadian Federation of Independent Business. In the wake of increasingly worrisome news of uh, the global spread of COVID-19, stock markets have reacted negatively and on successive days. Both in New York and Toronto, markets have taken a, a deep dives. Tom Caldwell is the chairman of Caldwell Investment Management in Toronto. And uh, Mr. Caldwell joins us on the program. Tom, I've always said when 
things are not going particularly as we'd like them to, I reach out to you because you always provide a perspective that we can understand and and some assurance that you know that we we can walk away with information we require. So thank you for the time and uh, what's going on in the major stock markets. Is this short-term panic over COVID-19 or something else? Okay, well, that's, I think you have to break it down in parts. Uh, the coronavirus is clearly front and center. In fact, it's a funny uh, reverse uh, correlation. The number of cases go up, the market goes down. If Once it reverses or tops, it will reverse itself. Um, I mean, that's from everyone's opinion. There's lots of experts out there. No one knows for sure. But one thing we, I think we can say, this is not the Black Death. It will get resolved. Now, I can't give you, and I don't think any expert can give you, a time when it's going to be resolved. Uh, it might be one month, one week, or one year. I have no idea. But when it is resolved, or when it's seen to be resolved, the markets will move back up. The market declines are very much technical, though. When you have people basically moving toward the door, particularly in the exchange-traded funds, these things have to liquidate. They can't wait. They can't play the market. And you also have algorithmic trading. So between exchange-traded funds, algorithmic trading, that's where the computer just clicks in and sells, it, exacerbating a trend. This tends to feed in itself. The structures we've created in capital market, markets create this technical um, acceleration, whichever direction the market's going in, up or down. Uh, but if you look at it as a technical impact to the market resulting from the coronavirus, what that's doing is it's leaving the companies with good fundamentals looking like better and better value. So there will be opportunity in here, and, and that's how I look at it. Now, I'm not going to look for catching a falling knife, but what I am saying is that this will get resolved, markets will move up, and when I start to see a little bit of a turn in the corona thing, then I will be back in the market and, and buying what I can buy or, and reordering my portfolio to buy some of the great stocks that have come down so much. But, I mean, that's, uh, that's everybody's guess at this point in time as when the numbers are going to uh, top out. Are, are the principles of investment still what they were before for the, for the average investor, for the person who maybe has a retirement tied up in the, in the markets? What's the advice to them at this particular well, time? The principles are not the same. The market has changed dramatically. I've been in the investment business for 55 years. It's totally different now. You have so much in the way of technical, mathematical modeling, um, artificial structures that will just work on market trends. Or, for example, on algorithmic trading, uh, will click in either buying or selling, depending on how much, uh, how many times the the Fed uses the word easing. For example, <laughs> I mean it's 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 calculated to certain events, which might be the right calculation or not. But, and also, remember, the exchange-traded funds must do their trades, typically do the trades at the last on close, because if they buy it during the market and the market goes up or down, then that means their pricing is off. So they tend to be near the end of the day. So whatever the trend is, it is exacerbated. So these technical factors pull away from the fundamentals. The calculation done by most firms is only about 10% of the people participating in the markets are fundamental investors. That is, inv buying good companies at a good price. The rest of it is technical trends on stock prices, not on the fundamentals of the company. So the markets have changed dramatically, and I don't think people really realize that. I don't think regulators have realized that at all. So uh, what happens is when you have a technical disconnect with fundamentals, that presents opportunity. I have in front of me uh, an op-ed that you wrote in uh, the Globe and Mail on Christmas Day, 2018. Oh, yes, on, on volatility. And yeah. well, that speaks to that point, and that's still a valid piece. Uh, 
about this volatility just sort of exploding off of the fence, if you will. So uh, for the person who is in the market now, do you hang on to what you've got? Do you, uh, what do you do? Well, everybody says, oh, it's a buying opportunity, but they always tell it to people who are already fully invested. So for me, I can just tell you what I'm doing, and, and uh, you know, sometimes I'm pretty good at what I do, and uh, sometimes. Uh, so for me, I would say just, just hang in for the time being. I mean, I, I, that, that may prove to be uh, not correct, but for my opinion, what I'm doing, I'm just standing pat. When I can't see the end of it, all I know is the companies that I own are excellent companies, and they're getting cheaper, and if I can find some more cash around, I'll probably buy some more, or I will switch to things that have declined a lot more than some of the stuff that I have, and a lot of them have. So there may be opportunities, things like, like Apple or the FANG stocks, that's Facebook, Amazon, Netflix, Google, those were way, way exploding in price. Well, you know, there might be an opportunity in them. So to me, uh, I'm going to stand pat. Maybe reorder some some of my holdings, or maybe buy more. You know, if I can scrounge up some cash, because I am pretty well fully invested anyway. But I'm going to ride the thing through. I mean, the whole thing in investing is quell your emotions, and and uh, when it comes to markets and trading, I have no emotions. I, I I don't go home fearful. I don't lose a night's worth of sleep because I've done it for so long. The market, this thing will get resolved with coronavirus, and the market will go up. I just yeah. can't give the time frame. Fear is a terrible companion to have. Well, it is. I mean, any time I've made a decision personally uh, or in business uh, on fear or anxiety, it, it's it's usually a bad decision. I've got to pull away and think clearly, try to analyze, and and if I look at the factors in markets, they're technical, not fundamental. That fundamental being the basic um, operations of the businesses that I own. So if the technical thing drives the market down, that means those good businesses are getting cheaper. So that's how my brain uh, tends to work in this. So, so that's the current one. If we, <laughs> listen, if we resolve coronavirus, uh, the next thing everybody's going to be worried about is Bernie Sanders going to get in and they're going to... Be oh, don't start. So there's always <laughs> something to worry about. Please don't start with that. <laughs> <laughs> thank you, Tom. Great, uh, great to Any talk to you. Time, thank you. I hope you get your phone thing fixed up. Yeah, you know, we, call me back. We can talk more. All right. Thanks so much. Tom Caldwell, Chairman of Caldwell Investment Management in Toronto. Matthew Fisher joins us from Japan, where COVID-19 is more of a top of mind, if that's possible, issue than it is in this country. Coronavirus cases continue to climb there, and uh, the 2020 Tokyo Olympic Games could be in difficulty. Matthew's uh, columns and comments appear at globalnews.ca, and he joins us from... Are, are you in Tokyo? I am in Tokyo, yes, sir. Uh, just about uh, one mile from the center of the city. So how is Japan, how is Japanese society... First of all, how's the government, how's the, how are the medical authorities... Uh, communicating with the people of Japan, what are the instructions, and how is the populace of Japan responding, Matthew? Well, there's been a tremendous amount of communication, not necessarily between the government and the people, but all agencies of the government and hospitals, and every day there seems to be uh, more and more. Uh, When I arrived here a few weeks ago, uh, Roy, uh, maybe half the population, a third of the population, were wearing masks. Uh, but there's been a big push on to get people to wear them and especially to wash their hands. And now you can't get 
anything to clean your hands. Uh, you can't get face masks uh, anywhere in the city, although the government keeps telling people that these are the best ways to avoid getting the virus. And now there's quite a controversy developing because apparently so much of this has been outsourced to other countries, the manufacture of face masks, because it's so much cheaper to buy them elsewhere, that you can't just start your um, production up again uh, and produce uh, the required masks. Uh, every day is a new mask here. Uh, I went out with a fellow last night who had not been to Hawaii, but he had all kinds of American products with him, such as hand washer, uh, hand cleaner. And uh, uh, he said that he'd had friends on vacation who, in Hawaii who'd bought him huge supplies. Uh, everybody is talking about it. And now I'd say about 90% of the population are wearing masks. It's socially uncomfortable. If you're out in Tokyo right now, if you don't have one on, it's like you're not pulling your weight, you're not participating. And uh, uh, so it can be awkward. And, of course, I am wearing one, too, I, I, not only because of the society, but because I, I don't want to catch the thing myself. And although it's better to wash your hands than to wear a mask, it mitigates things somewhat uh, to wear the mask, too. You write in your piece that uh, the Tokyo 2020 Olympic Organizing Committee uh, is making some... Well, there are considerations, are there not? The Maybe having to postpone or cancel the Olympics. Am I right about that? Well, already they're canceling a lot of the pre-Olympic events, the trials, the qualifiers, uh, the various things that Olympic cities go through in the months before an Olympics. Uh, they're being um, canceled en masse. In fact, uh, I don't think one of them is surviving. Dick Pound, the IOC member from Canada, got a tremendous amount of pickup here because he seems to be the only IOC official talking about this. And he said that the, uh, the date that they have to know by is the end of May about whether to proceed with the games. And he thinks that if uh, they don't take place this summer, they cannot be rescheduled for the fall, uh, nor can they be rescheduled for next year. And uh, Japan has invested $26 billion in the games. And, of course, a lot of national ego is always involved in these things, and that would be a staggering amount of money, even for a wealthy country like Japan, to throw away. Uh, and there's talk, should we have the Olympics with empty stadiums? Uh, that's already happened here. The sumo wrestling tournament in Osaka, one of the big ones, uh, every year uh, has been canceled. Uh, their Major League Baseball, baseball is a huge sport here, uh, it has been canceled. The soccer league is playing some games to totally empty stadiums. I don't think Canadians have really thought this through in terms of the Stanley Cup playoffs. Maybe there have been articles about it, and I've missed them, Roy. But uh, if this thing catches hold in North America, there will be a tremendous effect on North American professional sport, amateur sport, your little kid's sport, how they gather at a playground uh, on the weekend. Wow. Uh, you know, you don't really, until you started talking about it just now, I started to think about how much more broadly this could affect the Canadian population, even though we've been hearing that mass meeting quarantine may take place. But you also wrote about your experience at the world's busiest train station, uh, Shinjuku, in Tokyo. Tell us about that, please. Well, it is the world's busiest train station and um, everything that that implies. 
Uh, it is absolutely fascinating uh, as a foreigner to go there and watch this sort of constant shuffling of the deck as people rush around. It is extremely crowded. Uh, so many subway lines converge there, and then so many rail lines converge there. It, it makes Union Station sort of uh, look like, a, uh, in Toronto, uh, look like a, a rural train station uh, because it is so busy. And right now, Roy, when I was there a couple of days ago, I never get a seat on a train out of there. And the other afternoon at uh, 4.30 in the afternoon, right at the beginning of rush hour, uh, I got a seat fairly easily uh, on the subway. This is absolutely unheard of. Already, people are staying home. Uh, mothers are not taking trips nearly as much as they were before with their, their children. And a lot of salarymen, as they call them here, are staying home. They're not working in uh, their companies. Uh, the government has encouraged uh, a lot of this uh, work from home and work with your computer. They're behind, actually, North America in this by quite a bit, but they're catching up very fast. So uh, the, the station, I wouldn't say it's deserted, but an awful lot of people aren't there anymore. This has tremendous knock-on effects in terms of losses for public transport systems, losses for all those small restaurants, the small businesses that uh, keep any economy, including Canada's, going. Uh, they're all laying off people. They're shuttered. They're closing hours early. Uh, it's quite a profound effect, and uh, it, it's uh, a testing ground, I guess, for how the West may have to react to this in the weeks and months to come. And Japan is so close to Korea where, uh, you know, there are hundreds and hundreds of new cases every day, and, of course, fairly close to China, where, as we all know, there's, what, 80,000 cases. Yeah. And and you're right that uh, in South Korea, all 28,500 U.S. troops there are on lockdown in their bases. I mean, the world is changing. It is changing. And for the U.S. forces, it's, they're all young guys. They can't leave the base. All the U.S. warships in the Pacific must now be at sea at least two weeks before they're allowed to land anywhere so that every single person on board can be cleared before they make a port wow. call. Uh, well, keeping the Navy at sea is actually not harming you militarily. You can maintain your high posture. If you keep 28,500 troops in the bases, the Army troops that are supposed to defend South Korea against North Korea, that does have a security effect. And yeah. uh, it's, it's, it's incredible, re really, what's happening and what well. could happen in Canada in the weeks to come, Roy. Well, you have a safe flight home, and uh, and be well, my friend. And, and when we think about the fact that we didn't really know and our coronavirus, we hadn't heard the term until well, even eight weeks ago, and now we are where we are in the world. Matthew, thanks for talking to us. Again, stay safe, stay healthy, and we'll see you back in Canada. Tremendous pleasure. Thank you, Roy. Take care. Matthew Fisher. Globalnews.ca is where you'll find Matthew's columns, globalnews.ca. Thank you for listening to today's podcast. If you want to hear more, subscribe to The Roy Green Show on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, or wherever you find your favorites. And if you like what you hear, leave us a review and tell a friend. I'm Roy Green. Have a great weekend.